0: You have a seat. Good morning, Harvest. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. And whether you are one of the few joining us in person this morning, or uh, as I'm assuming you're on vacation tuning in online, uh, we are so glad that you're uh, spending part of your Sunday morning with us. Uh, we're just really glad. We want to want to serve you well, and we want to pray for you. Uh, so. Uh, we are just, again, so glad that you're with us this morning. But let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you typically use to get your eyes on God's Word, and I invite you to meet me this morning in First Samuel chapter 18 it will be in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 this morning as we continue our Heart of the Matter sermon series going through the book of 1 Samuel. Even if you don't have a a copy of God's Word with you, I would still really encourage you and invite you and challenge you to follow along with us. Uh, There's a couple ways you could do that. If you are here this morning and you would prefer a paper Bible, uh, we've got some on the table in the back and we would love for you to just take that. Uh, and keep it as our gift to you. Or if you're at home and you don't have one, you can just pull out a phone right now, something that you're not watching this on, and Google First Samuel 18 and 19 ESV, and it'll pop right up for you because technology is awesome. Uh, but First Samuel 18 and 19 this morning, and as you're turning there, I just want to take a minute and say how thankful that I am for Bryce and Amy. Uh, unless you preach, you don't know this, but it is uh, the worship that happens before you preach does a lot in your own heart to prepare you to preach. And uh, I can't think of anyone that has, uh, in his time, been able to, and I'm not looking at him right now because I'm going to cry if I do, <laughs> but uh, has been able to prepare my heart to preach than it has been, a, than been Bryce Wright. And it's been a privilege to get to serve alongside him the last year. And uh we love you guys, Veronica and I do, and you know that, that Silas and Nathan do as well. I don't think that's without question, uh, but we're thankful for you guys. And so uh, I would really challenge all of you again, 6 to 8 p.m. tonight, come back here and let's send off Bryce and Amy. Well, even if you're on vacation at Ocean City, I promise there won't be traffic coming this direction. Uh, so get in your car and let's, let's send them off well. But First Samuel 18 and 19 this morning, and as you're turning there, let's pray for our time together in God's word this morning. Uh, Father, we, uh, we love you and we need you. And as we just sang, uh, you're all that we need. Father, we, we ask now as we turn to your word that you would meet us in a powerful way. Even the few of us that are gathered this morning, uh, again, we need you. And we believe with all our hearts that uh, every word of scripture is inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit and is profitable for us for doctrine and reproof and training and righteousness. So I ask that you would meet us to challenge us, to encourage us, to equip us, to Uh, to make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see the seriousness of our sin and the safety of your sovereignty this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 18 and 19. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the snowball effect is, it might sound like something that's what happens when you dig into an icy cold treat on a hot, humid summer afternoon in Maryland, but I promise you it's something that's much more dangerous than that. In cartoons, the snowball effect is what happens when an animated character decides to go skiing. Uh, so they, they climb to the top of the mountain and then they trip and they start tumbling down the mountain. And you've, you've seen this, the, the, like a literal snowball is forming around them that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're like screaming, Get out of my way. And you, all you see is arms and legs like poking out of the snowball and somebody's about to get hurt. That's the snowball effect as it happens in cartoons. In economics, if they're not careful, the snowball effect is what happens when a person finds themselves in debt. Maybe they've made some unwise financial decisions or some unnecessary purchases a time or two, or or maybe they've lost their job unfortunately, or they've they find themselves in a medical emergency and they've got medical bills piling up and they just keep piling and piling and piling. But for whatever reason. Because of how interest rate works, that, that debt that happened as just a small thing soon becomes so big that, that it controls every single penny that ever enters their hands. As dangerous as the snowball effect is when it comes to skiing and economics, throughout scripture we're, we're constantly warned of another kind of snowball effect that's just as dangerous and can get out of control just as fast. In fact, the reality is that this kind of snowball effect that we're going to look at this morning is even more dangerous an old gospel song that puts it this way. It says, sin will take you farther than you'll want to go slowly, but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you'll want to stay and sin will cost you far more than you'll want to pay. See, the snowball effect of sin is dangerous and it it gets out of control in a hurry. And that's exactly what we're going to see happening in King Saul's life this morning. Over the last couple of weeks in 1 Samuel, David's really come on the scene. and We've really been focusing on him, uh, and we, we've seen Samuel anoint him as king. We've seen uh, David's famous encounter with Goliath. We've seen his friendship with, with Jonathan, but let's not forget where we left our focus of Saul back in chapter 15. Remember, King Me had shown up in Saul's life, and, and because Saul had rejected God's authority over his life, God had rejected him as the king of Israel. And so to use our our cartoon skiing illustration, we could say that that Saul had climbed the mountain, he was at the pinnacle, and at that very moment when he decided, you know what, God's word has no authority over my life, we could say that's when he tripped, and that's when he decided to to, to tumble down the mountain, and now from the rest of the book through 1 Samuel all the way to chapter 31 until Saul's death, we're going to constantly see the snowball effect of his sin piling up and piling up and piling up. So here's our big idea this morning, our our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage. They'll tie it together for us. Our our big idea this morning is this, a heart left unchecked does catastrophic damage, but a heart submitted to the Lord rests in his care. Again, a heart left unchecked does catastrophic damage, but a heart submitted to the Lord rests in his care. Right? Our sermon series is the heart of the matter. We're talking about hearts, and we're going to see two hearts going in two separate directions this morning. See, this passage warns us not only about the dangers of our own sin in our own lives, but it also shows us where to turn when we're experiencing the the catastrophic effects of, of someone else's sin on our lives. So if you're ready, let's go ahead and jump in this morning. Here's the first reality that God's word has for us this morning. Reality number one is this. The snowball of my sin begins in my heart. The snowball of my sin begins in my heart. If you have your Bible open to 1 Samuel 18, look with me at verses 6 through 9. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Just to set the scene for us right before this in chapter 17, since we've been skipping around a little bit, is is the, the, the encounter of David with Goliath. And contrary to what we might remember from those Sunday school flannel graphs that we grew up with, uh, this encounter between David and Goliath was just not them by themselves out in the middle of the field, and then you know what happened. This was really the the entire Israelite army and the Philistine army facing off on a standoff on the brink of war. This was a crisis moment of national security for for God's people. And God was with David. And David killed Goliath, and the Israelites beat the Philistines. And now they're, they're returning back to their lands to ticker tape parades. I'm sure we've all seen the pictures in our history books of, of the celebrations that took place in New York City on Victory Over Japan Day in 1945 when the Japanese surrendered in World War II. Like we've seen those classic black and white pictures of Times Square packed with people and people rejoicing and confetti flying. That's where the, the famous picture of the sailor kissing the nurse came from. Like We know what we're talking about here. So, so, so picture that because that's, that's, the, that's the environment that they're coming back to here. That's what's going on here. And on top of all of that, a a new summer song hit the radio to celebrate Israel's victory. Everyone knew all the songs and and all the women were singing this song and and blasting it from the loudspeakers as Saul Saul rolled back into town and, and he did not like what he heard. The song blasting from the radios was Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Over and over and over again. And no, Saul did not like it. I mean, why would he? Like, he was supposed to be the natural hero. He's the king. He's supposed to be the hero here. So no, he wasn't a big fan of the new number one hit. In fact, he hated it. It says that Saul, it says that Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Let's just pause and back up for a second here. See, Saul's not the only one that's in the wrong here. There's a deeper problem that's happening in this text that, that we need some context on to understand. See, what the women were doing here and singing this song was customary in their culture, but, but they've, they've, they've done this before. We've seen it throughout Scripture, but now what they're doing is they're doing the right thing in the wrong way. They're misplacing their praise. See, all throughout the Old Testament, whenever God's people experienced a great victory, what they would do is they would, they would take that experience of victory and turn it into these short little songs that they would use to commemorate and worship God for what he has done. For instance, in Exodus 15, after God had led his people across the the Red Sea on dry land, uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, led the people in singing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Then in Judges 5, after another victory, Deborah led the women in in another song, and here's part of what it said. She said, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. But now in 1 Samuel 18, the people are singing again after an awesome victory that the Lord had given them. This was an awesome thing that happened when David killed Goliath. But instead of singing, look what God has done, the people are now singing is, look what Saul and David can do. See, they've misplaced their praise. So let's let that be a caution to us. See, when you you start disproportionately focusing on the people that God uses in your life, let me say that again, when you, when you start disproportionately focusing on the people that God uses in your life, you're running the risk of taking your eyes off of God. Saul said something like that too. In First Corinthians, Paul was writing to a church that was divided in part because they were starting to, to, to create these fan clubs for their first century celebrity Christians of the day. And here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses four through seven. He says, when one says, I follow Paul, And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See, it's God who gives the growth and gives the victory and deserves the glory, not people. See, Paul understood something that Saul didn't. He understood that all leaders are first and foremost servants of the living God and stewards of his work. And it doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. And that's why when Saul rolled back into town in this victory parade and he heard everyone singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, his 10,000s, he, he felt that little twinge in his heart. You ever feel that little twinge? It's called Pride. It's caused by you not getting what you think you deserve or by someone else getting what you think should be yours exclusively. In other words, it's caused by by, by the the emotion of like, I want that, I've got to have that, I need that now or the emotion of, you know what, that's mine and they can't have it. I'm not sharing. And it's opening us up to all kinds of anger and bitterness and jealousy and anxiety and we see all of that happening in Saul. Again, it tells us he was angry tells us he started worrying about losing control of his kingdom. And it says, Saul eyed David from that day on. Like he couldn't get him out of his mind and just think all of this is internal so far. All of this in Saul's life is happening right right in here. It hasn't even shown up in his behavior yet. At the end of the day, Saul couldn't control what song the people were singing in their own hearts. But when he felt that twinge in his own heart in the form of pride, he should have stopped it right then and there. He should have taken the advice of the Puritan preacher, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This was the moment of decision in in Saul's life. This was the moment he should have gotten low before the Lord and humbled himself and said, God, help me remember that I am nothing but your servant. Don't let the seeds of pride take root in my heart because I'm, I'm feeling it right now and I know the reality that if I don't, if I don't root this out at the cause, uh, this is not gonna go so well for me. It's gonna take me places that I have no business going. So God, help me. But he didn't do that. And the snowball of his sin started in his heart. Friends, don't leave your heart unchecked. Keep a close watch on it because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately Wicked. It is entirely possible for you to convince yourself you're fine when you're really not. So on a regular basis, humble yourself before the Lord and pray David's words in Psalm 39 where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Not my actions, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous or wicked or horrible, sinful way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. And if you do that genuinely and humbly, God will meet you there and help you root things out before they ever get out of control. But the snowball of sin had already started in Saul's heart, so, so hold on, because it's about to get way worse. It's about to start affecting his behavior. So the next reality that we see in this passage is number two this morning. The snowball of my sin shows in my behavior. The snowball of my sin shows in my behavior. Let's just be honest for a second here. I mean, for the most part, we're really good at hiding what's going on in our hearts, are we not? Like we're, we're experts at putting on a good front in public so that nobody ever knows how, how messed up we are. We're, we're, we've mastered the art of giving service level answers to the people around us so they never really get too close to us. But the thing about the snowball of our sin is that even if you can manage to, to hold it together for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and satisfy the answers of the people that are closest to you, the reality is that it will show up in your heart and in your life and do catastrophic damage eventually. It might only come out at home where you think that, that nobody will ever know, nobody will ever see it, nobody will find out about this, or it might come out at work where, where you're like, everybody does this. It's really not that big of a deal. But eventually, a heart left unchecked will do catastrophic damage. It's always no different. So far, everything we've seen with him, him this morning has been internal, but that's about to change so the snowball of sin was taking effect in, in Saul's behavior, and that's what we're really going to see through the rest of chapter 19. And so instead of reading it all at once, we're going we're to break this down this morning and identify some of the things that can happen when the snowball of sin starts to get out of control. Just to be clear, this is not an exhaustive list of the ways that sin can show up in your life, but it is how it showed up in Saul's life. So let's take a look. When my sin snowballs first, I lash out at others. I lash out at others. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 18. The author goes on and he says, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. You know, probably one of the biggest questions that we could have from this entire passage is, is what does it mean when it says that a harmful spirit from God rushed, rushed upon Saul? The bottom line is we don't know exactly what that meant, but we can build some, some theological guardrails for us to kind of guide us and, and help us understand Saul's frame of, of mind. So, so here are those theological guardrails. On one side of the road, as James 1.13 tells us, uh, that God is not the author of evil. God himself does not tempt anyone or, or force them to sin. Then on the other side of the road, the other, the other guardrail is that all throughout Scripture, we are told that we alone are accountable for every single one of our thoughts and actions and words. So within those guardrails, whether it was God hardening Saul's heart like he hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, or, or whether it was God allowing Satan to, uh, to attack uh, Saul in a unique way like he did with Job, or if it was a form of God's discipline on Saul like he, he had, for his continued dis- disobedience like he had done to Nebuchadnezzar, what we have to be really clear on here is that Saul alone is responsible for the snowball of his sin. That Saul alone is responsible for his actions. So apparently it had only been a, a day or two since uh, when this happened that he'd been home, but, but I can imagine Saul having that song stuck in his head. Imagine him sitting on the throne and having that song show up in his mind, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and it's making him mad. He's clearly already not in a great, a great state of mind here because as one commentator points out, the king of Israel here is sitting in the most secure house in Israel and he's armed for war. He's sitting there locked and loaded with no threat in sight. That should tell us something is off here in Saul's heart. And he's dwelling on that song and stewing on it and it's, it's eating him alive and he's just getting madder and madder and madder. And then and maybe one of the servants walked into the throne room and happened to be whistling that tune and it set Saul off and Saul just lost it in a moment of rage and threw the spear right at David. And this happened twice. Now, listen, I'm kind of reading between the lines here and I'm using my sanctified imagination to fill in some of the blanks, but I, I really want to imagine the, the immediate aftermath of this happening of when Saul lashed out in anger. I just want to, really want to imagine it as a moment of complete and total sobriety for him. I want to imagine it as one of those moments where he did what he did, and then, and then in the pit of his stomach, right after he did it, he knew that he was wrong, and he felt the guilt and the shame and even the embarrassment to his core. I, I want to imagine it was, it was a moment where he did it, and then he snapped out of it and was like, "What? what did I just do here? Ever have one of those moments? Ever lash out at someone that you love and immediately you knew that you had done some catastrophic damage all because you'd left your heart unchecked and the snowball of sin had started even though the other person whether it was your spouse or your child or your parents or or whoever closest to you that that you lashed out had no idea that your heart was a ticking time bomb that's what happened to saul See, we tend to picture Saul and, and David as enemies, as, as political rivals. And sure, they became that eventually. But let's just not forget that, that back in chapter 16, we're told that, that, that Saul loved David. He trusted him. He cared for him. He, he brought him into his inner circle and gave him all the benefits that came along with that. But sin will take you farther than you'll want to go slowly but wholly taking control. In other words, it'll leave you hurting the people that are closest to you all because you left your heart unchecked. Listen, if you want the primary application of this passage for our lives, I'll just give it to us right now because honestly, it's gonna be the same thing over and over and over again through this this passage. See, the primary application here is not uh, don't be proud or don't lash out at the people around you or don't do any of the things that we're about to see Saul do. Yes, those are important applications, and no, you shouldn't do them, but I don't think we need a whole sermon on uh, you probably shouldn't kill somebody. I, I think we're pretty clear on that. So, if you want the primary application of the passage for our lives, here it is. When the Holy Spirit sets off the alarm bells in your life that the snowball of sin has started and it's headed down a hill in a hurry, stop everything you're doing. Get your heart in a posture of repentance and humble yourself before God and everyone around you, no matter how humiliating you might think that's going to be. But do it before things go too far. As Hebrews says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Run to Jesus. And if you, if you do that, you will find grace abundant and overflowing at the foot of the cross because of what he has done for you. That's the good news of the gospel. Even if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, the good news of the gospel is that that, that the foot of the cross is still your source of daily grace. You must run to it. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what the gospel is, I want you to know that that Jesus loves you. And 2,000 years ago, he came from heaven to live the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live and then die as our substitutionary sacrifice for the imperfect, sinful lives that we live. And he rose from the dead three days later so that no matter who you are or what you've done, if you will humble yourself before him and and turn from your sins and place your trust in him for salvation, he will save you today. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've never done that, do it today. I'd love to talk with you after the service about what the gospel would look like in your life. But no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, stop the snowball of sin dead in its tracks Because first, when my sin snowballs, I lash out at others. And second, when my sin snowballs, I isolate from godly friends. I isolate from godly friends. Look back with me at verses 12 through 16. I promise we'll move a little faster from here on out. But look at 12 through 16. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand and he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. It was clear that the snowball of sin had, had driven a wedge between Saul and David. And, and now that, that Saul's lashed out at David, the next thing that he does is he, he, he isolates himself from David. Literally, it says he, Saul realized that he was living in sin and that the Lord was with David, and so Saul sent David away. He, he sends him out in the fields. In other words, instead of moving towards one of the people that would, would point him in the right direction, Saul isolated himself. He got David out of the palace and sent him off to war. So just as a brief word of application here, when you, when you sense the snowball of sin starting in your life, the last thing that you should ever do is pull away from biblical community. The last thing you should do is isolate yourself from godly friends who who love you enough to tell you the truth and plead with you and pray for you and hold your hand all the way back to Jesus. My time as a pastor, I've already seen this happen way too many times, but let me tell you, it's heartbreaking every single time. It always starts with just a little thing that's really not all that little at all. It goes unchecked for a while, but then eventually somebody notices that, that the other person is drifting, and so they, so they work up to the, the courage to, to talk to them about it, but, but by that time, the seeds of, of pride have already taken root in that person's heart, and so when they, when they address it with the person, all they get is a, how dare you? And how, That how dare you then turns into unanswered texts, and it turns into distance at church, then isolation, then more drifting, and eventually full-out rejection. So catch it early. Listen to the warning signs. Stay tethered to Jesus. Because next, when sin snowballs, I start scheming wickedly. I start scheming wickedly. Look again with me at verses 17 through 30. See how this sin is snowballing in Saul's life. and We'll see the the scheming wickedly here. It says, then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Edriel the Mahalathite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul said to him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. So before the time they expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. As often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. You know, we've all heard the saying, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Well, apparently, according to Saul, the country of Israel wasn't big enough for Saul and David because his plans now have, have turned from, from isolation to homicide. David was thriving as a military leader and, and people were only loving him more and more. So Saul decided it was time to really get rid of him. And to sum up what we just read, Saul had a few plans in, in, in mind Really the bottom line of his evil plan here was to keep David constantly at war so that eventually the law of averages would take over and, and you know what, he's just gonna get killed in combat and I'm, I'm innocent here, I didn't, I didn't do this. In order to do that, he figured that he would do this. He, he offers to David the hand of his daughter Merib in marriage under one condition that he even couches in spiritual language. He says, just go out there, keep fighting the Lord's battles, David. Just have at it, keep go fighting for the Lord. Unfortunately for Saul, David turned him down, but then Saul got another shot at it because apparently Saul's other daughter, Michael, is in love with David. And I could just see Saul as the evil like, Disney villain like, rubbing his hands together with this like, evil grin on his face, and, and he sees his plan coming together. He's still going to try to get David killed on the battlefield, but even if that doesn't work, verse 21 tells us that Saul was hoping that Michael would be a snare or a trap to David. David. See, Saul knew what we'll find out in chapter 19, uh, that, that, that Michael had a thing for idols. She wasn't walking with the Lord. And so in Saul's mind, even if he can't manage to get David killed on the battlefield, what's going through Saul's mind is, you know what? I know what will trip him up. I'll get that man who has the hand of the Lord. That, that man after God's own heart, I'll get him to marry my idolatrous daughter. That, that should do him. And that'll, that'll trip him up. That'll ca- solve my whole problem here. But it doesn't. And the hand of the Lord was on David, and he was more than successful on the battlefield. And he marries Michael, and in verse 30 it says that David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that he was highly esteemed. Listen, again, I think, I, I hope we all know that it's more than a red flag when you find yourself scheming someone's death, trying to have them actively killed. So let's, let's bring this a little bit closer to home. You ever find yourself scheming about somebody's downfall? Maybe not actively taking steps to make sure it happens. Maybe not, maybe not really doing anything about it, but, but thinking things like, you know what? I've thought I've about enough of them. Wouldn't be such a bad thing if they fill in the blank. If you fantasize about their downfall because they're so under your skin that it's not a stretch at all to say that you hate them. Let me just remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, that if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. Maybe we're not all that unlike Saul after all. Again, don't leave your heart unchecked. Look for the red flags and run to Jesus. So so then last, when my sin snowballs, the last thing that happens here is I use clouded judgment. I use clouded judgment. So so look at chapter 19, verses one through seven here. Goes on again and, and, and says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to his fa- Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. So basically what happens here is that since Saul kept failing at killing David, he asked for help. He, he tries to enlist some other people to help kill him. And that's when Jonathan steps in to try to talk some sense into Saul. He, he steps in to, to help him think clearly about the reality of what's been going on here. And he, he basically tells him two things. He basically says, Saul, number one, David has done nothing to you. And number two, not only has he done nothing to you, he's actually done everything for you. Like he's done nothing but serve you faithfully and you're out to kill this guy. And at least for the moment, Saul starts thinking clearly. He says he won't kill David. But again, this is why we can't isolate ourselves from godly friends. This is why we need biblical community because when the snowball of sin is, is taking its effect in our lives and we're, we're busy and stressed and consumed with, with a particular situation, we start using clouded judgment and assuming the worst about people. We start questioning their character Making assumptions about, uh, about their motives and, and putting ourselves in defensive positions relationally that, that not only prohibit reconciliation, but they're certainly not going to let us pursue growth in our relationship with them. That's what Saul did, and that's what we do, and that's why we need someone in our lives who can sit us down and look us in the eye. Say, no, no, no that's, 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 not what ha- that's not what's happening here. You're a little too close. Let's, let's back. Let me tell you, that's not what's happening here. You're not really under attack. They're not really out to get you. So let's, let's get together. We'll, we'll go talk to them. Let's, let's get the conversation going. Let's, let's see what's going on in this relationship. I want you to remember 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't use clouded judgment, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. And by the way, Paul didn't write that for a wedding ceremony. He wrote it to a church. So let's aim for clear thinking instead of using clouded judgment. So Jonathan confronted Saul about his, his, his clouded judgment and and, Saul, and brought Saul and David back together again. But of course, you know it's not over yet, so let's look at one final reality this morning. See, so far, we've, we've tracked the snowball of sin in Saul's life when his heart was left unchecked. But, but what about from David's point of view? How do you survive when the, when the snowball of someone else's sin is, is coming right for you? It's about to roll right over you. What do you do then? Well, here's reality number three this morning. The safety of God's sovereignty covers my, comforts my fears. That The safety of God's sovereignty comforts my fears. One last time, look back with me at 1 Samuel 19. Finish it up from verses 8 through 24. It says, and there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand and and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul and he struck the spear to the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window when he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image, that's an idol, a full human-sized idol, and and laid it on the bed and, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the cloths. And then when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to David to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? In other words, he threatened her. That's what Michael said. Now David fled and escaped. And when Saul came to Samuel at Ramah and and told him about all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was first told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth at Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the, the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing at the head of them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. And he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And the one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and prophesied until he came to Naoth at Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? See, at some point it starts to feel like we're just going in circles here. The same thing keeps happening over and over again, but that's what the snowball of sin does. So it said that there was war again, David was victorious again, and then Saul lost it again. So just on, on a lighter note here, like, let's, let's point this out. Like, uh, uh, just as an aside thing, if, you walk, if, you're, if your boss has already tried to kill you twice with the same sword or the same spear, and you walk in his office and he's got that, that same look in his eyes and he's holding the spear again, it might be a good day to call in sick. Let's just go with that. But in all seriousness, this is hard stuff. Just think about all the different tensions here. Saul's on the throne, but David's already been anointed, and he's still humbling, humbly serving here. So we could say that there's some, some employment tensions going on here. Saul's Jonathan's dad, but David's Jonathan's best friend, so, so we could say there's some, so there's some relational tensions here. We could say there's some, some, some neighbor, friend, small group type tensions going on here let's not forget that Saul is David's father-in-law now. So there's definitely some family tensions going on here. Those are the best, aren't they? Ever feel the weight of all these tensions? Ever feel the weight of having to manage all of those tensions while you're the one who's trying to follow Jesus and you're the one who's trying to do the right thing and, and live righteously? But no matter what you do, somebody's mad at you. Somebody's out to get you. See, David knew what that was like. That's real life. And that's one of the reasons I love scripture so much because it, it brings us into the, the messiness of people's life and, and, and then gives us hope. But this time Saul's determined to kill David. He basically puts a bounty on his head and, and sends men to his house to watch him. And Michael knew they were there. So, so she helped David escape by doing the old stuff some, stuff some pillows under the blankets type thing, except she literally uses an idol. And then she told the men who were there to kill him that David was sick. And Saul says, you know what, Just Bring him up in his whole bed. Like, I'm determined. Just bring up the whole bed up here. Like, this would almost be a funny scene if it weren't so tragic. But I guarantee it wasn't funny to David. I can guarantee that before he escaped, he wasn't sitting at his kitchen table sipping iced tea and and surfing Facebook while Saul's soldiers were out to kill him. He probably wasn't sleeping well. Probably wasn't planning his next, next vacation. He might've really wanted to, but I doubt that that's where his focus was. So the question then for us is, how do you survive when the pressures of life are squeezing you and you don't see any way forward? How do you survive moments like that? How do you survive the tension and the stress of things like that? What did David do? Well, he turned to the safety of God's sovereignty to comfort his fears. He handled things very differently than than Saul did. He lifted his eyes to the Lord and rested in his care. And we know that because Psalm 59 tells us that. See, some of the Psalms are kind of like David's journal. And so it's awesome that we can see what, what, what David was facing in one part of Scripture and then turn to another part of Scripture and, and see what he's feeling. And this is one of those times. I want to read Psalm 59 for you. And as I do that, I want you to, to picture David's emotion here. I want you to feel his fear, pay attention to his trust and share his surrender. Here's what, here's what Psalm 59 says. The introduction says, a victim of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Here's David's prayer. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously pot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths and swords at their lips for for who they think will hear us. Listen, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down. That's what he's about to do here. Our Lord, our shield. For the sin of our mouths, but the word of their lips, let them them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. We're not going to break that down this morning, but did you see what David did there in the middle of his fears? He turned to the safety of God's sovereignty to comfort his fears. He looked vertically, he lifted his eyes, he, he pleaded passionately, he cried out to the Lord, he requested specifically, he told, exactly, he told God exactly what was going on in his life. He was extremely specific for him there. And he thought theologically, he remembered who God is and what he's done. He remembered God's faithfulness and all of that led him to hope continually in the Lord and to worship boldly. And that's what some of us need this morning. if you're here this morning and you're feeling what David felt and your fears are overwhelming, you pray Psalm 59. Make it your own. Make it your declaration to God and your reminder to yourself that that no matter what happens, you will rest in the safety of God's sovereignty to comfort your fears. David did, and the Lord was with him. I've seen that phrase over and over again. I would challenge you to go back this afternoon read it again and keep underlining and highlighting how many times we see the phrase, and the Lord was with him. Because he was. The Lord will always be with his people when their hearts are fully submitted to him. So to wrap up the chapter, David fled and ran to Ramah to see, to see Samuel. And of course, Saul, Saul chased him. And then what happens next is awesome. Saul sent soldiers to, to go get David. And, and when they got to Ramah, the spirit of God just took over and turned the Saul's warriors into God's worshipers. So he tried again and the same thing happened. He tried again, and the same thing happened. And then he tried a third time, same thing happened. And so Saul, Saul said, you know, if you've got to do something right, you got to do it yourself. And so he went to do it himself. And God put him on his face, because as Proverbs 21 one says, the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whichever way he wants. Listen, I'm not saying that when you go into work on Tuesday morning, you'll find everyone who who has an issue with you uh, having a spontaneous worship service in the break room. But I am saying that God can do anything with anyone. No matter how hard you think their heart is, no matter how distant they are from you, God can do anything. So comfort your fears by resting in the safety of God's sovereignty. That's the invitation for us this morning. It's an invitation of grace whether you're caught in the snowball of your own sin this morning or you're, you're staring down the snowball of someone else's sin that's that's headed straight for you, the answer is the same. Run to Jesus. Drink in his grace. Rest in his love. Run to his sovereignty and be safe. There's better no time to do that than now, so let me pray for us as the worship team comes to lead us. Father, thank you for the the honesty, the brutal honesty of your word to Show us that life is messy, that our sin snowballs when our hearts are left unchecked. Father, thank you for the, uh, for the reality of your word. And Father, we ask that your spirit would be moving again even now to, to convict us. All of us are sinners. We confess that to you. All of us are different stages of our walk with you, and, and your, your spirit knows that, and, and Father, I just ask that you would you would help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Convict us in this moment, help us to, to see it in the early stages, to, to make it so evident to us that we would humble ourselves, run to you for grace, to trust you, to repent, to, to humble ourselves before you and everyone else. Get us back on track, Father. And also for anyone here this morning that is struggling and sorrowful and fearful, help us to rest in the safety of your sovereignty. Help us to run to you and be safe like the the Psalms say over and over and over again. This is a a big thing that we cannot do on on our own, Father, but you are able in all things. So help us. And be glorified in the worship that we give you. In Jesus' name, amen.